Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to Western Civ, Episode 70, The Magyars. For the past several episodes, we have focused generally on the Viking impact on Europe. Predominantly, that is a phenomenon with some exceptions that impacted, well, Western, Western Europe. Eastern Europe, however, has not been quiet. Far from it. As the Vikings were terrorizing the West... The Magyar horsemen from the Great Plain were storming across Germany and into the Balkans. Today, we swing to southeastern Europe, but for a change, we are staying generally above the Balkans in the sphere of influence dominated by the Eastern Roman Empire. Today, we look at the birth of the Kingdom of Hungary. Location, location, location. As anyone who knows real estate will tell you, it's all about location. The medieval kingdom of Hungary was born in what is referred to as the Carpathian Basin. This is the middle region of the Danube River Valley. The name, Carpathian, is derived from the massive mountain ranges that border the plains to the north. The region is divided unevenly by the Danube River and surrounded by mountain ranges. It is a larger area than the combined landmass of Great Britain and Ireland. Thus, given its strategic location and sheer size, it's a bit surprising I have not talked about it much yet. But as we will see, there are reasons for the relative silence. The climate west of the Danube is predominantly temperate with relatively heavy rainfall. The landscape is made up of fertile hills, valleys, and mountain ranges. East of the Danube River, the story is a bit different. This is the home of the Great Hungarian Plain, which is, more or less, a continuation of the Eurasian steppe, 
which has been home to different nomadic tribes we have encountered in this podcast, such as the Huns and Avars, and will, in the future, give us the Mongols, far, far to the east, obviously. Here, the climate is much more extreme, with hot summers and cold, windswept plains in the winter. But unlike much of the steppe, the Great Hungarian Plain is well-watered due to the existence of the Tizia, the main river that slowly meanders through it. Nearby the river, you would have found, before the 19th century when it was regulated by man, swamps, marshland, meadows, and forests, all perfect for raising game in herds. To the north of the plain, mountains again rise in the distance. These were much less hospitable than those to the east of the Danube, and consequently were uninhabited in the Middle Ages. When the Hungarian Magyars emerged from the steppe in the 9th century, they were living as a nomadic horseman tribe. They spoke a dialect derived from the Finno-Orgic language. But culturally, they had much more in common with other nomadic peoples, such as the Turkic peoples of the steppe. But more about that in a moment. First, let's answer that original question. Why did it take until the 9th century for a civilization to take advantage of what would seem to be such prime real estate? So there are really two answers to that question. The first is that I messed up by not mentioning this area earlier because it has been densely populated since Neolithic times. And we have already heard about many of the peoples who have populated the region. The Celts moved in in the late Iron Age, as they did most everywhere else in Europe. Then the plain was occupied by different nomadic tribes, such as the Sarmatians, Scythians, and Alans. To the east were the Dacians, who we might remember from Roman times, since they were conquered by Trajan in the early 2nd century AD. And that brings us to the second answer to the question. The reason we have not heard much about the region apart from a couple of passing references during Roman times is because it was the site of nearly constant devastation from the 3rd century AD onward. First, the different Germanic tribes tore through the region until the Romans realized they could no longer even hold Dacia and pull back beyond the Danube. Then the region became the seat of the short-lived Hunnic Empire in the 430s. And, if you recall, the Huns were more about smash and grab than literature and building great monuments. Hence, we have a bit of a record problem. There are many who still claim, somewhat dubiously, that the Magyars, the tribal horsemen who formed the basis of Hungarian society once it developed, descended from the Huns. While we cannot discount the theory completely, it is more likely that the Magyar horsemen simply lived under the Huns when they were in their brief ascendancy. Regardless, Shortly after the death of Attila, the Hunnic Empire was swept away by the revolt of different Germanic peoples, principally the Gepids. Hence, the answer as to why we have not talked about the region is simply that, due to constant devastation and attack, there are no records. Indeed, most Roman towns in the region were completely destroyed between the 3rd and 5th centuries. So we had to wait for a people that could settle down and create a kingdom before we could finally see some growth. Luckily, the 7th century began a period of cultural migrations into the region which culminates with the Magyars and the establishment of the Kingdom of Hungary circa 1000 AD.
Beginning in the 7th century, a series of migrations onto the Great Hungarian Plain began to change things. First came the group that archaeologists have dubbed the Late Avars because they appear to be culturally derived from the Avars, a nomadic people we have already met. They were followed by the Onagurs, who we have already met as well, but whom you will recognize more easily if I use their later name, the Bulgars. The Bulgars' stint on the plain was short-lived. The Khazars, yet another nomadic horse-archer civilization, quickly showed them the door. Given nowhere else to go, the Bulgars continued their migration further south to the Balkan Peninsula, where they have previously entered our story. However, also in the 7th century, a much more important ethnic migration was taking place. The Slavs were on the move. The Slavic peoples, which is a very broad ethnic categorization, I know, seem to have followed in the wake of the Avars who left the Carpathian Basin shortly after reaching it. We have already seen the role that the Slavs played in the creation of what I will term Russia around Kiev and Novgorod. Now we will see how they impacted the development of the medieval kingdom of Hungary. But for all of this, the period that really matters for the purposes of medieval Hungary is the 9th century, which begins with the fall of the Avars and ends with the Hungarian conquest. At the time, three powers operated in the Carpathian Basin, and it's important to understand this because the way that the Magyars are going to interact with these three powers is going to dictate how the Kingdom of Hungary comes into being. First, there was Pannonia, which extended up to the Danube River, and that had been a part of the Carolingian Empire. Pannonia had also actually been a part of the Roman Empire, if you remember. But due to waves of disruption and invasion we already covered, Little of its Roman past remained when the Avar showed up in the 9th century. North of the Danube lay the Second Kingdom, the medieval kingdom of Morovia. Morovia was a Slavic kingdom. Under Prince Slavopuk, it was a massive kingdom and extended over most of the Great Plain. In fact, Moravia made efforts in the middle of the 9th century to conquer Pannonia. Finally, there was the Bulgar Khanate, which we already know a lot about. Those were the three kingdoms in place at the time of the Magyar invasions. So now that we know something about the lands and the kingdoms that will feel the wrath of the Magyars, let's explore a little bit more about them. So, first problem. Although historians believe that the early Hungarians used some form of Turkic ruined script, they have left us no written documents. So piecing together the original origins of the steppe warrior Magyars is difficult to say the least. Second problem, the people who came into contact with the Magyars did write about them. However, they wrote about them using the usual stereotypes. To the Byzantines, they were just another group of horse archer nomads from the steppe, and thus they were dubbed Scythians. Scythians, of course, have not existed in our stories for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they certainly did not exist when the title showed up in the Byzantine sources around the 12th century. Third, the first mention of the Magyars in the sources is 830 AD. But there is simply no way a people with a sophisticated language, which was Ergic, a branch of Finno-Ergic language structure, and tribal structure, sprung into being, fully formed in the 9th century. But as we all know by now, the early Middle Ages gives us, at times, only the haziest image of what was. So, Given all this, it can be really, really difficult for us to sit here and try to piece together 
What exactly happened prior to 830 AD? Where were the Hungarians? Where did they come from? What were their tribal structures? But given that, we'll do the best we can. At the time the Hungarians show up in the sources, they had long lost whatever cultural connections they may have had at some point with the North, given their linguistic grouping, we can assume they must have had some. Instead, they resembled the cultures of other nomadic horsemen from the steppe. Of the Magyars, contemporary sources give us the following description. Quote, They spend all their time on horseback. They travel, rest, think, and talk on their horses. They are extremely careful in teaching their children and servants in the art of riding and using the bow. End quote. In other words, this is a description you could have given to the Sarmatians, Huns, Scythians, Avars, or Khazars just as easily. In fact, the descriptions of the Magyars are virtually identical to those of other horsemen. Contemporary sources go out of their way to describe just how cruel the Magyars were. For example, while the Vikings were content to just burn villages, the Magyars seemed to derive a sadistic pleasure from slaughtering people. Early Hungarian society seems to have been very similar, as I've said repeatedly already, to other nomadic civilizations. There was a large class of commoners at the bottom, and a warrior elite at the top who were, in turn, dominated by an even smaller class of nobles at the very tip-top. A quirk of Hungarian society that would persist for a very, very long time was their fondness for dual kingship. Even at the time of the conquest, Byzantine sources relate how the Magyars had two princes. However, also at the time of the conquest, at least the same Byzantine source is very clear that the two princes had very, very little control over the whole political unit of the tribe. Rather, each of the then seven tribes had their own leader who, frankly, did whatever they wanted. That might include fighting against the other six tribes at times, even when they were supposed to be directing their efforts towards external enemies. Hungarian raids, unlike the Avars or the Huns, were not organized by a central authority. Rather, different chieftains made different decisions at different times, which made said raids even more difficult to predict, but also more difficult to coordinate. It was really only after the disastrous defeat in 955 that we will talk about that the power of these various chieftains was broken for the final time and consolidated behind some form of a centralized government. In 862, the Hungarian horsemen, or Magyars, I use those terms interchangeably and have been because the Magyars essentially formed the basis for the Hungarian state. In fact, contemporary historians write that the Hungarians came into being from seven tribes of Magyars and three tribes of Kavars. Anyway, in 862, they first appear in the Western sources when they attacked the Eastern Frankish Empire, so... Germany. But it's really from 894 onward that we can speak of what's called the Hungarian Conquest. And we know why they show up around this time. Subscribers to the show will recall that the Byzantines called on the Magyars to attack the Bulgarians in an effort to draw Bulgar attention away from the empire. You'll further remember that the Magyars were then themselves attacked by the Pechenegs with disastrous result for the Magyars. But the Byzantines were not done. In 894, 
they ferried a Magyar army across the Danube, and a combined Byzantine Magyar force defeated the Bulgarians. At this point, the Magyars begin to occupy the Great Plain in Transylvania on a permanent basis. In other words, the Byzantines had opened Pandora's box, and now there was no way to close it. Interestingly, the Pechenegh attack against the Hungarians served only to drive them further into Europe. The devastating attack forced the Hungarians from the Eurasian steppe deeper into the Carpathian Basin. They were there to stay. The Hungarians then made quick work of the other kingdoms in the area. Pannonia that we mentioned fell in 900, and what remained in Moravia two years later in 902. At this point, Hungarian raids deeper and deeper into Germany and the surrounding areas became essentially an annual occurrence and would continue to be so until the Magyars started to suffer setbacks in the middle of the 10th century. While the Magyars had some advances into Italy early in the 10th century, King Berengar I of Italy, a Frankish king, paid them off, and so they turned their attentions towards Germany. At the Battle of Pressburg on July 5th, 907, the Bavarian princes were crushed, and all of Germany was effectively opened up to Magyar raiding. Keep in mind, all this is going on at the exact same time that Viking raids are increasing throughout Western Europe. It was a veritable perfect storm of destruction. The Frankish king, Louis IV, tried again to stop them in 910, but he was again defeated. It would be a long time until anyone was able to make another effort. And until then, the Magyars continued to pillage, burn, and slaughter throughout most of modern-day Germany. In fact, in January of 917, they crossed the frozen Rhine and began to pillage into Alsace and Lorraine. Thus, the vice grip between the Magyars and the Vikings was nearly complete. I wouldn't forgive anyone living in the region at the time to wonder, this wasn't the end, if this wasn't the apocalypse itself. In 922, Berengar of Italy again called up the Magyars as allies and they stormed into Burgundy. In 924, Berengar used the Magyars against his own rebellious subjects and they sacked his own city, Pavia. In 937, they again crossed the Rhine and this time they pillaged all the way, all the way across Francia to the Atlantic. It took a powerful Holy Roman Emperor to finally stop them. Otto I, who ruled from 936 to 973, was one of the most powerful Holy Roman Emperors in history. Throughout his reign, he worked to increase his influence over the various different petty kingdoms that dotted Germany at the time. Luckily for him, his father actually had some success and defeated the Hungarians in battle in 933, which gave Otto the ability to consolidate his power and then extend centralized control over southern Germany which had the effect of restricting the areas within which the Hungarians were able to operate. Then, in 944, Otto defeated the Hungarians in Saxony, and from then on out, the Hungarian raiders avoided that province. The Hungarian raids in the west came to an abrupt end in 955. In that year, the Hungarians prepared to renew their offensive in Germany. But Otto was ready. He waited for them near Augsburg, just northwest of Munich today, and crushed them. With the defeat at Augsburg, Otto had ended forever 
the Magyar threat, at least for the West. The importance of the Kingdom of Hungary, however, has much more to do with what happened after the conquests, which had ground to an end by 955. To quote the author and historian Pyl Engel, quote, At the time of the Hungarian invasions, Christian civilization, even in the broadest sense, hardly extended beyond the River Elbe in the north and Danube in the south. Beyond these frontiers lay the land of the barbarian peoples, who held on to their pagan beliefs and lacked any form of stable political organization. By far the most important and most surprising development of the decades around 1000 was the sudden expansion of Christian Europe. The Scandinavians, the Czechs, the Poles, the Russians, and the Hungarians, independently of one another but almost at the same time, embarked on a course that was to take them from their barbarian origins towards the establishment of a Christian kingdom. As a result, by the middle of the 11th century, the greater part of present-day Europe had become, both politically and spiritually, part of the Christian commonwealth. End quote. While the glory for this transformation always goes to King Stephen I, we need to recognize that there is no way that one monarch could affect such a change or that this change could take place over one generation. In this case, the transformation began with King Gezia and was completed by his son, the aforementioned King Stephen. How exactly Gezia came to power over the entire burgeoning Hungarian state remains a mystery. However, the date we can tie to his consolidation of power over the varied tribes is 972, and that corresponds so closely with the defeated Augsburg in 955 that the two events have to be related. It is also only common sense that, faced with a real military setback, the Hungarians would look for new alternatives to maintain what they had already conquered. Geza, once he acquired power, must have immediately gone about seeking to consolidate it. In 973, he dispatched peace negotiators to Otto I of Germany, and then renounced any Hungarian claims to Bavaria and Moravia. While he continued to run into trouble with a few different German lesser kings, he was successful at again signing a peace treaty with Otto's successor, Henry II, in 996. Interestingly, as a result of the various treaties that Geza signed in the late 10th century, Hungary's western border would remain unchanged until the close of World War I in 1918, which is a staggering accomplishment, to say the least. Geza was baptized in 972, probably at the request of Otto I, though he never became a wholehearted Christian. His son, who bore the name Stephen since his baptism, however, would take the Christianization of his nation much more seriously. Stephen was truly the creator of medieval nation of Hungary. He reorganized the Hungarian church, which would form the basis of the power of Hungarian monarchs for centuries to come. He created the political system that was to last until the 13th century. And this was a kingdom and civilization that would have a major impact on the European stage in the High Middle Ages as our story continues. Yet, first... Stephen had to complete the process of unification that his father started. Immediately, Stephen had to defeat a rival claimant to the throne, which he did in 998. Then, in 1003, Stephen enacted Transylvania, and henceforth, his authority extended over all the lands inhabited by the Hungarians. But the most enduring step of his rule came on January 1st, 1001, or possibly on Christmas Day of that preceding year, just a few days earlier. On that day, he was crowned King of the Hungarians, a first 
for a tribal leader and an event officially sanctioned by the Hungarian church. In fact, Stephen considered the event so momentous that he counted the years of his reign from that date onward. Let us consider for a moment just why this event was so important. Stephen's was a wholly new government for Hungary, one authored by Stephen himself, no, not literally, and of course by mostly the archbishops. Thus, the stamp of the church appeared on almost every facet of government. This is not a government that would understand the separation of church and state. Furthermore, Stephen's power was clearly dual, secular and temporal. Stephen was not only the political leader of the realm, he was officially in charge of securing the very souls of his people as their religious leader. Of course, there must have been some pushback in the face of such dramatic religious change. New bishops instantly acquired new estates, making them powerful lords. New lords that the old pagans had to share very real power with. Furthermore, with the new religion came a foreign language, which warrior elites were now required to learn and to advance. Nevertheless, it was done. Favoritism was required to turn the screw a little bit. Clerics, for example, were exempt from the rulings of secular courts, while laymen, on the other hand, found themselves stuck with the rulings of ecclesiastical courts, particularly on what we would call family law issues, marriage, annulment, divorce, etc., etc., Interestingly, the exemptions granted to the early Hungarian clergy were so generous that the early Hungarian clergy were not even demanded to be celibate. But the cornerstones of church power remain the same as they were in England or France. It doesn't matter where you are. The tithe and the church estate. At some point during Stephen's reign, the payment of the tithe was formalized, though it was usually collected in kind. But the biggest source of church power remained land. And this has just often been the case in medieval Europe. It almost always is the case. The churches had huge estates granted to it by Stephen. And now they were going to support their new king and benefactor. As a result, any vestige of the old pagan belief system of the Hungarians or Magyars vanished without a trace. Now, Stephen did not create this whole new apparatus on his own. Knights, particularly from Germany, were on hand to aid him. Royal authority remained, above all, based on military might, and these knights helped with that. What helped more, however, was the network of newly created fortresses that dotted the Hungarian landscape. Due to the fact that the area which came to be known as Hungary had been ravaged so badly over the preceding several hundred years, we can say definitively that these fortresses were the new constructions and were completed by either Geza or by Stephen. But who is taking advantage of these fortresses? Well, ruling the different areas in Stephen's stead were counts, the equivalent of the eldermen in Anglo-Saxon England. These were usually very small geographic areas, which in some cases extended into just the surrounding territory around a town and no further. Indeed, we know from the historical sources that the count was closely associated with whatever main city or town lay within their county. There were princes and dukes who ruled larger areas, but these counts formed the backbone of the Hungarian political system. It was a smart move. None had enough power to challenge the king, and each had a small enough territory to govern 
that they could reasonably expected to see to all the daily affairs of their county. In a world with severe technological issues where one could not get a message any further than one could ride on a horse in one day, this made perfect sense. What was the sense, after all, in governing a region that you could not communicate across? Now, Stephen was not immune to international politics. In 1018, he aided the Eastern Empire and Emperor Basil II against the Bulgars. When Holy Roman Emperor Henry II died, Stephen pressed his claims to the portions of Bavaria that he thought were his. This led to a war with the new emperor, Conrad II, who in 1030 tried to invade Hungary and was defeated, and ultimately led to him giving up his claim to Vienna and the surrounding region to the Hungarians, which would now be under Hungarian control. Nor was Stephen immune to tragedy. In 1031, Stephen's only son died in a hunting accident. The most obvious heir was his cousin Basul, but Stephen, well, hated the guy. In fact, he hated him so much that when he named his nephew Peter, son of the Duke of Venice, his heir instead, he had Basul blinded, just to be on the safe side, you know. Thus, it was Peter who succeeded to the throne on August 15th, 1038, when Stephen died. Stephen, later canonized as Saint Stephen, laid the groundwork for an impressive civilization. Yet, his efforts were the culmination of centuries of change and migration that resulted in the powerful kingdom of Hungary coming into existence. A kingdom that will have a major impact and major part to play as we move forward from the early to the high Middle Ages. But before we do, I'm going to devote at least one, possibly two large episodes to some reflection. Next time, I want to answer a couple of questions. Why do we call this period between roughly the 5th and the 11th centuries the Dark Ages? How dark really were they? And in comparison to what? And should we move the date? I mean, specifically, is it fair to say that the Dark Ages begin upon the final collapse of the Western Empire in 476? I'm not so sure. And then I want to examine why 1000 AD is considered an epoch-changing date. What is it that makes early Middle Ages? Why does the year 1000 actually make sense? Because from my perspective, it does. If you've enjoyed the show, I would really appreciate a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions about the program at all, please feel free to email me at westerncivpodcast at gmail.com.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.